Hola, hola, She Love community. This is Sara with the She Love podcast, and this week's episode features my one of my favorite humans in the whole world, Anne Varnado. She is an educator of our amazing students. She was a Fulbright Scholar in Spain, just graduated from the Peabody School of Education at Vanderbilt University, is a specialist in ELL, English Language Learner, students. She's amazing. She's a connector, such a force. She's also an Aquarius babe and likes to do things the way she likes to do them. I love and and learn so much from her sense of conviction and independence and being such a unique, magical unicorn in this universe. So I'm excited to talk to her this week about her journey. She's an incredible ally to so many people. She really rides for her people and want to talk to her about her journey as a white woman from the South anti-racist work in her life and how that is an act of resistance, how that's an act of love for oneself and love for others, and how we can do better, how we can learn from her journey of really committing herself to being anti-racist. So, Anita, bienvenida, welcome, welcome. I'm so excited to have you on the episode this week and want to just start with your story, your journey. Tell us a little bit about where you grew up and how you got to this place where I feel that for years now you've really been investing in your own learning and listening and growth process of showing up as an anti-racist ally in in this world. Mm-hmm. Um, hi everyone. So just a little bit about my background. So I am a white woman a cis white woman from South Georgia, so a pretty conservative community. I grew up going to a private school that was actually founded the year desegregation was mandated. So we can obviously draw some conclusions about that one. I went to school with only other white kids, and I would say the majority of them were relatively wealthy and was just witness to a lot of injustice, whether it be blatant or systemic, throughout my upbringing. And I went to college and started working in schools and just had my, kind of my mind blown by the disparities I saw between the way that the people that were in my community were treated and the schools that they went to and the schools that I was working in, um, which was a majority Latinx and black children. Um, It was a middle school. And so I was actually in a sorority, which Sada and I both were, which is always an interesting experience because there's so much privilege, such consolidated privilege. And something happened while I was there and a Snapchat got taken of one of the girls in the sorority and the N-word was in the Snapchat. And she was basically bragging that um, we didn't give any black girls a bid. And somehow at this point, because I was working in schools, I had gotten labeled as like the woke one, which is not that hard to be the woke one when it's like 300 white girls who all went to private school. (laughs) 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 But... um, I was avoiding sorority activities, had become kind of become my thing. So I wasn't at the meeting where um, they discussed it. And a bunch of girls called me crying afterward and they were like, you have to do something. We looked so stupid. 
girls were literally standing up and saying, I'm not racist, my nanny's black. Oh, shit. To the chair of the African American Studies Department, who is an amazing, now one of you know my greatest mentors, um, but a black man from UC Berkeley who just like does not put up with that. Mm-hmm. So I actually scheduled a meeting with him, and I was so, I mean, the white girl crying trope is real, y'all. I just sat in that man's room and I was like, I'm, I don't know what to do. And it was like this whole thing had been lifted. And I'm so, I'm so thankful for him to this day because I didn't know like how problematic that was. But also he, he had chosen to be in Alabama. So he was used to like having to break this, you know, terrible shield we all have over our eyes for a really long time. And after that, I just got like, I don't know, it was like a fire was like lit in me. And that's why I never think this is like political work because like something like flipped like in my spirit that was like, you can't just let this happen and like not say anything. So I just started working on, you know, different in different ways, um, teaching or um, I worked to get the second SGA black president elected in Alabama. Um, just different things like that. And I actually changed my major to African-American studies just out of like, and I think sometimes people think that activism is out of like a place of anger or something, but it was out of so much love that I was like, we have to all be better. Um, and I really wanted to be better. And I don't really know why. It's kind of weird to talk about because I just felt like something was like, you need to do this. So yeah, and then I've, I've just continued to you know try to show up however I can Mm -hmm. and I think that when we talk about being an ally I think it's just like how do you respond to someone being like this is the way that I've been oppressed Mm -hmm. and if you have like a lot of love in your heart which I think everybody does it's just been shut off sometimes then you know the answer to that would be like what can I do Mm -hmm. or like how can I stand with you So I think allyship, you know, whether it be for, like, the black community right now or the immigrant community or the queer community, like, that's just responding to someone being vulnerable with you Mm -hmm. or, like, responding to someone's identity that, you know, has made things uh, uh, harder for them or just different than my own experience. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of how I view it, and I think that's kind of what's brought me to this point right now. Yeah. And I feel like a lot of what people are talking about right now is it's not enough to be not racist, right? It's yeah. not enough to not use the N-word. It's not enough to, you know, just do the bare minimum and sit back and watch things happen. And I feel one of the things that I admire so much about you, and I'm so excited to explore with you on this episode, is you are so proactive. You are constantly reading, looking up resources on your own, creating spaces, having difficult conversations with your loved ones or with your colleagues or people you grew up with. And I think that that is what it's going to take for this world to keep changing. And especially in white communities where very similar to what you expressed earlier, there's a sentiment of, well, what do I do? And I think there's a call to action for people to do better and to own that process themselves. Yeah. Of course, we you know need to work together and there are so many voices that need to be heard in these conversations, but I do think there's a cry for those of us who aren't black, myself included, 
to take it upon ourselves to do the work. Mm -hmm. And one of the expressions I always use when I'm talking about you is she does the work, right? She puts in the work. She does the research. She asks the questions. She wakes up and finds the information. She knows that she doesn't have to be perfect. She falls. She figures it out. She gets back up again. I just feel like you really show up. So what does that look like for you? And I'm sure that wasn't you, the first, you know, conversation you had with your mentor at Alabama University, but um, what does it look like like that for you now? And how did you get to this point where you kind of have that answer of like, what do I do? Where do I go? How do I show up? Yeah, I think um, the biggest thing is like, I think, I think at first in college, I wanted to be like an expert. But the truth of the matter is, like, as a white woman, I'm never going to be an expert on the way that any, like, person of color experiences racism. Mm -hmm. Um, But what I can do is be an expert on, like, how whiteness manifests in response to being called a racist. Um, Or, like, how we, how white people have decided they need to protect themselves from any conversation about race. Because... I think that the immediate reaction to any conversation on race is to just run away from it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's so sad to me because, like, nothing's ever going to change. And I even think about, you know, I think we look around our communities, like, speaking about me and Sada, and we're like, oh, everyone's so woke now. Or, like, everybody understands. Like, how could, how could the world not change? Um, but then, you know, I think as a white woman, I go home or I go to, you know, rural Alabama, or I'm sure you experience this in Mississippi, but you're like, this is how this doesn't change because our communities are still segregated. No one has any reason to really care deeply about doing this work. Um, so I think what it looks before for me, it was a lot of anger and like just calling people racist, which is so unproductive because nobody responds well to that, mm-hmm. to that. But I think what it looks like now is I think we use the word bridge a lot and just, you know, in those spaces that I am, you know, awarded the privilege of being a part of because of my whiteness, showing up and having these critical conversations even when it's really uncomfortable um and from being you know coming at it from a place of myself being humble about my journey that I'm on um and you know I'm racist we're all racist and I think that like just leaning into that is like what I'm trying to do right now especially with people who are just starting this journey because like we've said like our black brothers and sisters specifically right now do not need to bear, you know, the weight of all this work. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think about this with like all activism. And I feel like as women, we feel like this is how I feel a lot of the time is like, you're talking about your experiences. And you're like, this is the harassment that I face is the discrimination I face. And you're like, yelling about it. But like, all the other women that are, we're already listening are the ones that are listening still. And there's like a snow globe of a bunch of men that you really need to listen, but they're just like talking to each other. Mm-hmm. But if like one man inside that snow globe was like, hey, someone's shouting, you know, like yeah. what, how can we make sure that like their voices are louder? Um, I always think about like activism in that way. And I think of like allyship in that way too, because y'all like country clubs, like there's so many places where like whiteness is perpetuated yes. that where like so- all 
all that needs to happen for like radical change to start is just for one person to be like someone shouting outside the snow globe Mm, that's powerful and like y'all need to care you know and I think that's just like radical love for like humans like for you know whoever it is just being like we need to listen and I think that's what I'm trying to do right now is like you know continue to learn but like when I'm in those spaces and someone says something like it's not it's not an option to like not stand up you know absolutely and one of the things that has really been sticking with me throughout these past few weeks especially as there has been an even louder cry for accountability for those of us who are not black. Um, and I also want to say, right, like Latino people like myself, Latinx people who aren't black are people of color, but aren't black and need to do this work too. Mm-hmm. So this is for all of us. Um, but I would love to know what you, how you would navigate a situation so like this. So I have, um, I had a friend a few months ago express concern about, her whiteness and access to an all-male white space. Mm-hmm. And she was like, I already have barriers in this space being the only woman mm-hmm. in the South. And these men will make horrendous comments, racist comments, discriminatory comments about black people, mm-hmm. right? And name, right, queer people. Um, the list goes on, right? Immigrants. Yeah. And she said, I feel so disempowered to be able to speak up in those spaces Whereas I don't feel disempowered to speak up in spaces with my family who are white people or, you know, some of my white girlfriends. She's like, but in particular in the workspace, especially with hetero white men who hold power over me, she said, I feel so disempowered. And to me, I'm like, oh my gosh, that's the space where we got to be, girls. Like, let's go. Like, part of me was like, I don't care. You get up in there. You tell them what's up. And she was like, Sada, I can't do that. And I was like, why not? You know, and I, those are those moments of tension where you're like, oh, why not? You know, and there's no perfect answer, but I feel like you have such a special superpower of being able to navigate difficult conversations with people who maybe haven't thought about their own racism ever. Yeah. So how have you been able to develop that superpower? Where what where is your mind when you're faced with similar situations where maybe it's, you know, powerful people who haven't confronted their own racist thoughts? Yeah. I think that is so hard and I think it's really hard cuz the immediate reaction to hearing something like that is to get angry mm-hmm. um or to just like write somebody off that's what I used to just like want to do and I still do it especially with the people I love because you expect so much more from them but something I've realized is meeting somebody where they are and finding common ground is the most powerful way to get some someone to have this conversation so for example when I talk to you know people in the south like what's common ground that like most people in the south have is like god or like you know their christianity Mm. their their faith so you know when you come at it from if you can and like i have the privilege of having been born into um, a family where i know how to talk about those things i think i find that using something like concepts we all understand like you know spirituality god you know whatever religion it might be and saying like what is what does love look like to you like what would you know for lack of a better term, um, what would Jesus do in this situation? You know, 
how would Jesus have treated like the most oppressed people in this country? Um, or like, what is, you know, if someone is a parent, like what does love look like for, what does radical love look like to you as like a parent? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's really hard to do because it takes a lot of empathy with someone that perhaps you disagree with a lot. Um, but I, I think that most people who say things like that, they're defensive about something. So if you give them like an in, you know, something that a common language that we share and you like, you just offer it to them like, Hey, well, let's talk about your faith. And how does that apply to the black lives matter movement that gives them like, you know, almost like a different room to talk about Mm -hmm. it in. Um, we're not talking about it from Republican or Democrat. We're not talking about it from, um, you know, Trump or Biden. We're talking about it from, like, a very, very almost deeper level and mm-hmm. something that you're comfortable talking about and I can go there too. Um, so I think that's where I've had, you know, the most success in spaces like that where it is super intimidating. and um, But it's so necessary and I think that, you know, if you can't do it about faith, like, there's common ground people people share, whether it be, you know, something that seems totally random. But I think that gives anyone, that empowers everyone to at least be able to participate in the conversation, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. I heard something recently, it was about call-out culture, which has a, definitely has a place. I think some people need to be called out 100%. And they also talked about call-in culture. Yeah. How do we call people in? And, of course, this exists in different contexts. There's different reasons, spaces that this is appropriate. But I was like, you know, I'm going to add that to my toolbox and see how that works for me yeah. in, in certain spaces given certain contexts. And I think we're all sharing resources, experiences, vulnerabilities, tools because this work has been going, I mean, you know, this is hundreds and hundreds of years of oppression, of being divided, of being segregated, of um, of oppressing a people, you know. Yeah. And so I, the other thing I want to talk about is this is not for the goal of being perfect. This yeah. is for the goal of being consistent and showing up and believing so deeply that this is a racist country and we have got to do everything in our power to deprogram that and write a new narrative and build a new world that is inclusive of everyone. So I'd love to know about a time you can think of a memory or a story where you realized that this was not about being perfect or where you quote unquote messed up at being an ally and had an opportunity to grow and to learn. Because I think right now I've just heard in a lot of conversations, people saying, I'm so scared of messing up. Yeah. Yeah, I think first off, like, I want to say that I mess up, I would say, like, every day because I think that, like, being anti-racist is, like, retraining our brains. And I think it's so hard to do because I spent, you know, 18 years of my life, you know, not seeing a black person unless it was in my super segregated community where most black people live in poverty. Um, So, you know... I try to reflect on those things every day. Like, what did it do to my brain to only see black people in that context? Yeah. Like, what what did it do to my brain that the only black person that went to my school was an athlete? Mm -hmm. And, like, all of our moms told us we couldn't go to prom with them. You know, like, what what does that do to us? And how can 18 years of that be undone? And the answer is it really can't be. 
So I think that, I think I realize every single day that I still have so much more work to do and that I'm still learning. But I think that my, like, first thing that comes to mind is I think, you know, people talk about someone being, like, the good white person. And I can remember, like, the first protest I went to in college, um, it's when they were actually first asking for the names of buildings to be changed. And I went, and I just wanted, like, someone to be, like, good white girl. You know, like, I was waiting so much. Like, of course I cared, but I was 19, and I wanted someone to just be, like, wow, it's so brave, and we're so proud of you that you're here. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, I was, like, man. And then I just, like, went home to my apartment, and I was, like, "Hmm, I didn't really get the satisfaction out of that that I wanted. (laughs) Which, like, sounds terrible, but I think that, like, you know, when you're, like, the veil is, you know, lifted from your eyes or whatever – and you do one little thing of activism, you expect everyone to be like, oh, wow. Yeah. You know. Gold star. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, best white person that I know. Um, but I think, like, growing and becoming more mature and obviously, like, not doing this for any, like, praise or anything like that. Um, or performance. Yeah, like, actually learning, like, what that looked like. Because what – protests are awesome. And, like, I love to protest. But there is, like, a certain, like, performance aspect of it. Mm-hmm. And I think, like, figuring out for myself, like, what does this look like to be, like, an actual ally mm-hmm. when, like, no one's watching? And that's that's really hard. And I think everyone has that for you know, themselves. I think, you know, over the last couple of weeks we've been talking about everyone has their own lane or, like, everyone has their own form of activism. And I think that's really true. Um, so I think, like, yeah, just being, like, a young person and – obviously with the best of intentions, but just thinking that I was going to be, like, congratulated for not being racist, or but which wasn't true. Obviously, we know that, like, it's a journey. So, yeah, and I think, too, like, being honest about that with other white people is, like, so important. Just being, like, I don't know what I'm doing and, like, continuing to do that, you know? So what are resources that helped you in being able to navigate your own growth process? was Were there books? Were there documentaries, podcasts, Instagram accounts that you started following? Like, where do you, where would you point someone in the right direction to say, like, you really need to watch this or this changed my life or this really gave me a foundation from which to start building? Yeah. Um, I think that, one of the aspects of this that's important to recognize for me is that I had the financial privilege and academic privilege to like learn about a lot of this stuff in the classroom setting, which is something that I'm very aware of. And I have been reflecting on this a lot during, you know, people talking about the Black Lives Matter movement more, um, is that I spent three years of my college experience going to classes like black politics, you know, like queer black women in film, you know, so I think that I, because I spent so much time in the classroom setting learning about this, I wasn't always like seeking out resources in the same way that I think other people are having to right now. And then even when I went to Peabody and for the last two years, almost all of my classes were from a social justice perspective. So I was having those conversations almost every day. Um, But I think something that I realized that's, you know, really, really important for me um, 
I spend a lot of time on social media, probably way more than I should. (laughs) And following activists and like prominent black voices that need to be heard um, and read and listened to on social media, on TikTok, on Twitter. Um, Twitter is a huge activist place. And I think that has been something that has been so important for me Um, because even like subconsciously if you're just scrolling through social media but you're seeing whether it be the experiences of a black trans woman but I'm reading that almost every day taking in those stories and hearing from people who are different than you every single day um, is what I think makes you not be able to like turn away from this work Um, because I think what I think people who have a lot of privilege can do is do it for a little bit you know do it while it's trendy gets them into law school or whatever and then just turn their backs on it Mm -hmm. but I think cultivating an online community and then like a community of your physical community Mm -hmm. um, so you can't really turn away from these realities and then obviously I mean I think there's a workbook called Me and White Supremacy that I did and that was really, really helpful because they're basically just like reflections on whiteness. Um, it's written by a black woman, but she basically like deconstructs whiteness throughout the whole white book, throughout the whole workbook. Um, and I think watching stuff like 13th um, and then also just like working in schools. I don't think that there's any way to go into a public school or, like, understand the way the education system works and not think that racism is a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I don't feel like that's a really, like, tangible answer, but I feel like that's what's missing, is that people, like, study things or, like, read one book and then think it's, like, you know, done. Mm-hmm. But I think that if you're, like, in communities, like, I think educator communities, like, we talk about these things a lot. Like, we want to be better people and teachers and you know just I think human beings in general for our students and that means you have to continue to do this anti-racism work or like living with you you know like we sit we sit around and have these conversations all the time so yeah I think like and I think that's why a lot of our brains are so warped is like our communities just look like each other, mm-hmm. you know? So like it would be so easy for me to just have like a bunch of other blonde white girlfriends, you know, and have like married homeboy down in Louisiana. Mm-hmm. But that's not how we're like become better, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I love that you talk about it's not just about reading a book or reading an article and all of a sudden you're anti-racist. Yeah. Like this work is for a lifetime, you know, and I think that it's also about how you navigate the world and consuming black greatness. You know, I know you and I talk a lot about, um, the, the black power and beauty and talent and, and richness that surrounds us all the time, whether it be our friends or, Uh, music that we listen to, artists that we, that move us and shake us and challenge us. There is so much black greatness in the world. And I'm really saying this to listeners because I know you know. Um, And, and 
not just consuming that when it's convenient, I think is so important, right? If you listen to Lizzo or you follow Afropunk and go to their music festival, you need to be speaking out about these issues. I mean, you need to speak out about these issues, period. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think especially people who consume black culture daily, if you can consume black culture daily, you can stand up for black culture daily. And I think... um, you just made me think about that when you're talking about what are you surrounding yourself with? And I think, yeah, so many people have gotten the skewed view, especially people who haven't been a part of black communities. Um, you know, I, I think they have a skewed vision of, of what blackness means. Yeah. Like it's always inadequacy or deficit or people asking for handouts, right? There's so many harmful narratives that don't allow the 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 special beautiful incredible power that is um, a, a black people yeah. live in, in in its full truth and yeah. so I know a lot of people who do know that I know you know but I think uh, I just wanted to name that on the episode as well for anyone listening in or tuning in it's like you know we're consuming black culture and black greatness all the time um, let's name it and and let's stand up for for those people who we owe so so much to yeah um, from the you know building of this nation to currently still building and and pushing um, pushing us forward so um, yeah I just girl you got me on a rant I was like <laughs> Woo! let's go um, but yeah no I just I'm so grateful for you being vulnerable with me on the in this space I think vulnerability is a superpower and I appreciate you sharing your story and just want to know if there are any last things that you want to say about this work about yourself yeah um I think one other thing that I just want to say about this is your like our identity as anti-racist is not based on like our reaction to like black people or black issues our identity is anti-racist is how we confront our own our own whiteness and how whiteness has like shaped this country because I think like what a lot of people think anti-racism is is like you know supporting the Black Lives Matter movement or like you know not only like not using the n-word so it's always like this reaction to you know being scared of being labeled a certain way or like you know, caring enough, but never enough to, like, really reflect on, like, who you are and how that implicates us in this, um, and I think that's, like, a missing piece from a lot of this is, like, white people need to be talking about whiteness, and it can't just be when, like, a, a black man dies at the hands of the cops and a black person sets you down and is, like, you need to work this out. Mm -hmm. It should be every single day, you know, it should not be a response to something so tragic being videoed that you're upset about it now enough that you decide to, like, read one book. You know, I think that, like, whiteness is so such an evil thing that's ingrained in all of us that we need to be de- deconstructing actively every single day. Yeah. Um, and I just think that's, like, something that I'm really working on is, like, this work's never done and this work should not be a reaction to like black trauma right or like black pain this should be because like you care and you want to be better and you want everyone to feel 
loved and to have like the same opportunities that you've had. Absolutely. And to your point, yeah, I think also what are we putting on the line to deconstruct and change the world? Because these are structural things. And, you know, I know a lot of really wealthy, quote, like progressive liberal white people. um, And sometimes I find myself saying, you know, what are we putting on the line economically? We live in a capitalist country and change oftentimes means like changing economic structures, changing the flow of money, changing who is funded and who's not, you know, pouring resources, investing in communities, defunding the police, um, reallocating and redistributing because there is enough uh, in this nation. And so I also, you had me thinking of how do we also not just theoretically become anti-racist in our minds Mm -hmm. but in our actions and how we show up in the world and if you know we really have to reflect on how the structure has benefited us because of our whiteness not just you know beauty or getting into a good school but also like what came with all those privileges like where did you end up oh in a huge ass mansion maybe owning five houses you know maybe one of which you inhabit or right all the things and so I also think it's a, a big reflection as well on what does privilege mean look like and how do we start shifting the flow, if yeah. you will, um, which I, I truly believe is so imbalanced and so imperfect yeah. and is very connected to racism, not just like words, but really impactful things like, unfortunately, money yeah. um, in this society, but money as a resource. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much for your yeah. wisdom and your beautiful, incredible soul. How can listeners connect with you? Yeah. Um, everyone can feel free to email me, which Sada can put in the description. Yes, yes. in the show notes. Um, or follow me on Instagram, Ann Holmes V, like Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> um, yeah, or just reach out at any time, especially like people who want to be better white white allies I think like starting these conversations with each other first um you know and not having to whether it be like women or queer people like not having marginalized groups have to relive their trauma to like get you to even start to understand um so yeah thank you Anne and catch us on the she love Instagram page at the she love story where we'll be having more conversations and celebrating and uplifting, amplifying the stories of magical women. Until next time, gracias.